In the deep dark, the Aslan are moving, but there is a darker power. There is something behind the claw. Welcome to episode 17 of the Behind the Claw podcast, a show for fans of the classic traveller RPG. I'm Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. Let's start the show by taking a very scary look inside the email vault. Andy's been in touch to say that he's purchased my first traveller product, Decapedia. Well, thanks for that, Andy. That made my day. And Savane's been in touch too. He's got into Traveller via the Mongoose version, and he's finding the similarities and differences between that and classic Traveller quite interesting. Me too. That's part of the reason why this show exists. He also goes on to ask about what classic Traveller has to say about the Imperial nobility. Now that's a pretty cool question, so I've had to schedule that in for the Rules Talk section in episode 21. So I'm afraid you'll have to keep listening for your answer there. Thanks to both of you for getting in touch. Now, on with the show. I have no idea. So, computer, what can you tell me about this place? This is the My Galaxy section, where I tell you about one of the planets in the Tercesso subsector. You can find a map of the subsector and all the planetary UPPs at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Zapmanus is a thriving planet, if not a particularly happy one. It's open to trade and visitors, although always under strict surveillance. The planetary government is very invasive in its behaviour. It is possible that visitors will face an intensive questioning as they arrive or leave, as well as being followed during the visit. This is not unusually aggressive or dangerous, but can be persistent and somewhat annoying. Visitors are advised not to show any annoyance, as this would be considered suspicious by these authorities. This sort of thing is simply normal practice to the inhabitants, and any show of animosity by yourself tends to suggest to the authorities that you have something to hide. The atmosphere of Zapmanus does contain a degree of oxygen, and can be breathed for a short time, although it is extremely dangerous to do so. The plant life of the planet exudes a substance into the air that is hallucinogenic to humans, Varg and Aslan. It is this substance that makes exposure so dangerous. Those people that breathe the air are immediately thrown into intense hallucinations that overwhelm the conscious mind, to the point of forgetting to replace air masks and return inside buildings. The hallucinations themselves can take a number of hours to wear off and are very unpredictable. Sometimes the individual will find themselves in a state of near bliss, at other times unimaginable horror. The growth of the government's invasive policies can be charted through the media archives. After a few highly publicised leaks that allowed entire town domes to become overcome by the atmosphere, the people demanded better protection from the forces that threatened their safety. This protection at first took the form of a growing police contingent, and edged into the various invasions of privacy and ended up in a total surveillance state. The people of Zapmanus do not seem to find this situation disagreeable, and have elected a number of governments, all of which follow the same general principles. There have been a number of attempts over the years to effectively bottle the hallucinogenic qualities of the atmosphere, 
However, these have always proved unsatisfactory. The chemicals involved tend to break down very quickly, and thus do not store very well. And as already mentioned, the effects of breathing it can vary widely, making any economic outlook for its use somewhat dim. The flora and fauna are varied, and include the 200-pound hexaped slatheron, a vicious, dangerous pouncer animal that many hunters consider quite a prize. Such hunts have been known to be reversed, with the hunter becoming the prize, or rather, the dinner of the slatheron. Anyone wishing to go on such a hunt must seek a licence and an overseer from the local government offices. Landing on Zatmanus is strictly controlled, but freely given to any of the designated landing sites. No, no, no way. The way I heard it is that he was shipping arms, guns, you know, taking them straight in, under the navvy's nose. It's time for another story seed. The PCs are approached by a well-off patron who wants to keep his son safe from kidnappers. The country they reside in is fairly wild, with kidnapping for ransom a common occurrence. The son is a rebellious brat in the later years of teenagehood, who is not interested in anything except hedonistic pursuits. He goes to college because his father has threatened to cut him off from funds, not because he wants to. This young man also rejects the oversight of a bodyguard or a chaperone, and when one is allocated to him, he tends to give them the slip and disappear, which leaves his parents frightened and worried. The father wants the PCs to keep an eye on him during the last week of college, known locally as the party season. The PCs are commissioned to keep a close eye on him, to know where he is at all times and to protect him from danger or self-harm. How the PCs do this is up to them, but the youth will reject their presence if he discovers them or realises that they are working for his father. Thus they might try to befriend him, become a part of his social group, or mount a standoff surveillance. The target will not be an easy person to get along with. He's often rude and abrasive, not caring for others' feelings. This means that he often finds himself at loggerheads in aggressive situations with strangers, and these could easily lead to fights. To aggravate things, he's a secret base jumper, illegally leaping off of standing structures wearing a flying suit. He has a small group of associates who all engage in this hobby, and they'll be resistant and suspicious of any newcomers to their group. There are quite a few opportunities here for the players to have some fun. If they become a part of the base jumping group, they could find themselves in trouble with the law. If the target blows their cover, he'll actively try to escape from them. The whole scenario might be played as an undercover surveillance job. Kidnappers can appear at any time. Perhaps one of the base-jumping crowd is in league with the kidnappers, or make a mid-air snatch of their target. The father figure could be a legitimate businessman, genuinely worried for his son. Or he could be behind the kidnapping. Imagine that he wants to split from his wife but doesn't want her to get half of his money. He organises the kidnapping, pays all his worldly goods to the kidnappers to return his son, but they are really just a shell company that he owned through an offshore arrangement. Then his son gets returned, he then splits while penniless from his wife, and then takes back possession of the shell company. As the navigator said, plans within plans. No, sir, you may not dock here. What the hell? 
I just made three jumps to get here. Without Permit 7C, you may not dock. Now move out to the holding line at 6,000 kilometres. This is the rules talk section, where I talk about something from the core traveller rules. So today we're going to take a look at the tactic skill. It's an enigmatic skill, and many players look at it the first time they get it, and their first thought is, what on Triton can I ever use that for? Well, it's an army and a marine skill, so it's going to be military in nature. The 1977 core rulebook is pretty wishy-washy. It simply describes it as training in small unit tactics, that's units up to battalion strength or perhaps even individual starships. It might be used to influence the amount of information available in a combat situation and should be considered when applying for a job. Hmm. Surely Book 4, Mercenary, will include lots of uses for tactics. Well, I'm sad to report, nope, not an electric sausage. Diving into Book 6, Scouts, it does introduce ship tactics, which appears to be exactly the same skill but only relating to an individual starship, and no more information is given. Stepping back into the starter edition on Traveller, we can glean one more bit of vagary. It says there that it may be used to increase the level of success in combat, or to reduce the amount of loss. And that's it. There is nothing more to be found. With so little official guidance, how can you use tactics in your games? That's the real question. Well, let's look at tactics. Tactics are important in combat. A force without any sort of tactics will walk slowly towards the enemy in traditional World War I style. Tactics is, by definition, using resources in hand and the local environment to their best ability. With a normal group of PCs, you can't simply stop them from making their own individual character tactical choices, such as diving behind a rock or they're going to run away. If you try to use tactics to override that, then you're taking players' choice away from them and that won't leave anybody happy. So here's what I suggest. Every round of combat, any character that has tactics can make an 8-plus roll. On a success, every member of the party gets a plus 1 DM to use that round, and they can use that either to hit or to add 1 to damage. Simply, the rationale being that if the PC with tactic skills is shouting orders or suggestions, the others can use that, and thus they can make best advantage of group tactics such as use that rock for cover or flank him over there on the left, that sort of thing would be communicated. And therefore, all the PCs garner an advantage from that skill. It's my opinion that if you use the skill in this way, it will allow a character with that skill to have a real genuine effect on the combat, but not an overpowering one that takes control of other characters. And it's a skill every party would want on their side. Well, that's my suggestion. Let me know if you've used it and how so. Ah, damn piece of junk. Who bought this anyway? <clears throat> no, no, don't you dare say it was me. This is the review segment and today I'm taking a look at a non-core Traveller product. It's not designed just for Traveller. I'm reviewing a little PDF called 10,000 Starship Names. The PDF is a no-nonsense two-page PDF. There's not even a cover or a back page here. It gets right to the business. 
That business is providing you with two 100-item lists of words that can be combined to make a single ship's name. This is another product from Lee's Lists and follows exactly the same principle of the already-reviewed 10,000 Daring Rescues. In this case, you roll a D100, grab the result from the first page, roll another D100 and grab the result from the second page and combine them to get your ship's name. Yes, it's stupidly simple. Yes, you could write two such lists yourself, or indeed just make up a name for any starship at a pinch. But as with Daring Rescue's list, this is handy in such a pinch. Great inspiration. And for only 99 cents from drive-thru, it's not worth spending your own time to try and replicate your own version of this list. You could spend a few hours coming up with a similar list, or just spend 99 cents and have it right now. When I need a ship name, I just roll on these tables, or if looking for inspiration, a couple of rolls here can be that inspiration. For instance, ships called the Western Reaver or the Grey Widow instantly spark the imagination. If the dice suddenly surprise you saying that the heroes encounter a new ship, roll up its name here and you can be inspired to build an adventure around it on the fly. For 99 cents, this is a cool little tool for the referee and you should have it in your bag. Did you hear that? What the hell do you think it is? Is it dangerous? This is the Creature Catalogue, where we take a look at another creature from around the Imperium. A centuries-long breeding programme has increased the intelligence and size of the Ithanar. In its wild, undomesticated state, it's considered quite a pest, but early settlers saw some potentials in this beast. The Ithanar is insectoid in appearance, but is not an insect, but rather an armoured mammal. It moves on eight pairs of legs, and has a segmented appearance along its body. The insectoid appearance is reinforced by the structure of its head. It has ears, but they are recessed. It has a pair of small eyes that at first glance are easily overlooked. But the reason it's mistaken for an insectoid creature are the two large bulbous bony protuberances on the upper head that look rather like faceted eyes, such as an insect might have, but are, in reality, used when the creature butts heads with others of its race. The domesticated Ithana is roughly twice the size of its wild cousin and is easily familiarised to human contact. The animal has been domesticated for a number of purposes, including as a beast of burden and for drawing vehicles, although this is only done in the poorer circles of society on its homeworld. It is used as a riding beast in the higher circles of society, with particular skin colours being preferred and focused on when breeding couples are joined. There are two downsides to the keeping and use of the Ithana. The first is a periodic event that happens on an irregular prime number-based yearly cycle. During this period, all wild and domesticated Ithana strive to climb to higher ground. In the wild, the beasts climb mountains. Domesticated ones will climb whatever their constraints will allow them to reach. Trees, buildings, climbing on top of vehicles. In towns and cities, this can be quite a destructive thing to property. Why this need to climb exists is a mystery at present. Some theorise that it may be down to some historical, cyclical event that no longer takes place. 
such as an infestation of some sort, that could be avoided if the creatures climbed to higher ground. Whatever the cause, it's no longer apparent. Any ithanar that is penned during such an event and unable to climb to a higher point becomes extremely agitated and often violent. To deal with this unpredictable behaviour, it is normal practice to always have a high point such as a tree or a man-made tower in an ithanar paddock. The ithanar also has a rather unfortunate and unpleasant breeding cycle. They hatch a brood of between five and ten babies within their bodies, and the parent dies as part of the birthing process, and in the natural habitat actually becomes food for the young. As an ithanar can live for upwards of twenty years, it is normal to prevent domesticated individuals from breeding at all. Rather, special brood strains are kept for the purposes of keeping society supplied with ithanars. The birthing process is unpleasant to behold, and owners find the whole thing rather distasteful. Have you got that feed ready? Yep, feeding it through now. Got it, thanks. That net feed's got a weird name. What is it? Whale song. The captain likes whale song? This is On The Nets, where I tell you about some website or other that I found somewhere out there on the internet. And today, I'm looking at a system generator that generates a star system for you, not a subsector, just an individual star system. It has an awful URL, so get a pencil ready and I'll spell it out for you later. This facility appears on the Don John website, a place used in the past by me to generate dungeon maps. But here, it's generating a star system. When you browse to the web page, a new system is generated and you can just refresh the page to get a new system. But be warned, though, there doesn't appear to be any way to save the results, so if you like what you see, print it out. So what do you see here? Well, it generates a list of all the planetary bodies, not just the main planet. You get the star type, the planets and any moons they might have, and then it moves on to a planetary UPP. Not just a list of numbers, but each is broken down and displayed with a description of what it means. A very nice feature here is that if you want to change one of the stats, you can click a button next to it, and it effectively re-rolls the die for that stat, and then it also goes on to re-roll any of the other stats that rely upon the one you just re-rolled. So you get the chance to tailor the results any number of times in pretty much any way you want. And then at the bottom of the page is a planetary map, which looks very nice and gives you an idea of the overall water-land-polar-ice ratios. All in all, it's a great little tool. My only gripe is that it doesn't print very well. Hitting the print button means that the result comes out with the site's menu down the left-hand side. Minor, but niggling. OK, so have you got your pencil ready for this URL? It's d-o-n-j-o-n dot b-i-n dot s-h forward slash sci-fi forward slash t-s-g. It's well worth a look. So I'm here. Why don't you tell me why you're called? The spacer in the corner booth. Oh, don't stare at him. I see him. Who is he? It's the guy on the news vids. Which news vids? The thousands of channels. Crookwatch. Ah, I see. This is the People of Interest section, where we look at one of the more famous people from the local subsector. The Maxine Corporation 
were running a series of drilling and excavation tests on a moon simply known as Alpha 3 that orbited the planet of Ullapool. The moon at that time was relatively unexplored and no one had attempted to exploit it for any kind of resource. Maxine were hoping to uncover mineral deposits of some value that would allow them to mine the uninhabited moon. It was during these operations that they discovered what at first appeared to be fossil remains. Maxine's employees were trained to stop operations if anything unusual was found, and this discovery certainly fit that criteria. Executives were dispatched to investigate the discovery to see if that might be exploited for any financial gain. The bones, as they were being called, turned out to be just such an opportunity, and they sent for Dr. Raoul Turfius, whose investigation into the discovery has made him a name across much of Imperial space. Raoul took charge of the site and the finds. He quickly demanded an immediate end to the excavations and drillings after getting a glance at what had been uncovered. After a day of investigation and a vac-suited visit to the site, he declared a major archaeological find. The bones that had been uncovered were not actually fossilised, but were mummified remains. He brought in a team of archaeologists and representatives of a few media corporations. As his team worked on the finds and new discoveries, he created a series of daily summary broadcasts that caught the attention and the imagination of the public. The broadcasts were found to be so fascinating by those watching that they were picked up and transmitted across the subsector and eventually across the sector. His broadcasts were a mix of daily find catalogues and scientific musings about those finds. The finds themselves were of an avian-like species, about half the height of a human. These included not only some of the creatures themselves, but also a number of artefacts that seemed to indicate a simple Stone Age tool-using race. Yet as the digging continued, it soon became clear that the race were in fact highly advanced. As powerful investigative tools were focused on these artefacts, it soon became clear that what they thought of as a simple tool were far more advanced. In an example of what so fascinated the public about his broadcast, an item thought to be a simple digging stick was revealed on camera to actually contain sophisticated electronic circuitry. It was a major revelation, and it all took place on camera and on air. This device turned out to be a sonic broadcaster capable of gently moving liquid or dust. An ironic suggestion for its possible use was as a tool for archaeologists, suggesting the race was itself investigating an even older civilization. There were many such discoveries, and all made on air in such a way as to draw the audience into the material, making them feel a part of the story. As a result, Roald has become a celebrity on many worlds. He's still touring the sector many years later, giving both scientific talks and making celebrity appearances. Thanks for the trade, Tuchel. It was a pleasure doing business with you. So long, sucker. And so we've reached the end game once again. As usual, I'd like to put out the request. If you have any thoughts, suggestions, questions, or want to donate a segment item, please send them to BehindTheClaw at Outlook.com. This podcast is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Its home on the web is at BehindTheClaw.blogspot.co.uk. 
Music by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I'm your host, Felbrig Napoleon Herriot. Thanks for listening. Prepare for jump. <laughs>